Our ass is in the jackpot. <laughs> you can say that again, Jake. Former Mets manager Terry Collins joins this episode of Amazing But True. We also break down the highlights of the Mets' 60-game schedule. Also, will Steve Cohen buy the Mets? All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Crazy, yo. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing But True. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks, it's out of here. We got you. Welcome back to Amazing But True. Glad to have you. A New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Jake Brown, alongside my co-host, former Mets pitcher, Brooklyn native, Emmy Award winner, Nelson Figueroa. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get podcasts. And we appreciate your support. Give us that five-star rating. Write a nice positive review in Apple. You could do it on your laptop in the Apple store. You could do it on your phone, wherever you do it. Terry Collins, former Mets manager, is going to join us in a bit. What an interview, Figgy, with Terry. But before we get to Terry, we got a lot to address. A busy week in Mets baseball. We're two weeks away, Figgy, from opening day. And uh, glad to be back. You know, we had a fun show Monday. Got a good interview ahead, but lots to discuss. You know, we got the schedule is out now. We got the potential new owner on the way for the Mets as bids come in today. We got the 2021 schedule to announce. There's almost too many things happening today in Mets land. Well, all good things, right? When you think about baseball being back on the horizon, in only about two weeks away as excited as we can be i think as long as these tests keep coming back and you're looking at a one percent uh positive rate and guys are enjoying being back on the field everyone that i've talked to every player that i've reached out to it's just been great to be back on the field be around the guys and baseball usually takes your mind away from everything else for that, that amount of time that you're out there you know they're out there working out and getting their spring training on 2.0 uh i'm excited for this upcoming season in, in a totally different way i think it's going to be a, a race from the very beginning it's going to be exciting yeah figgy i'm pumped the schedule's out and you know you talked about guys you know comfortable and they're happy to be back one guy who said he's not too comfortable is Ahmed rosario you know came a day late he said spitting will be the problem he's so used to spitting and as ridiculous as it sounds i kind of get where he's coming from because i don't play baseball listen i played one year little league i tried to bunt once for a single any other time i either struck out or walked my last at bat of my one-year career I struck out and cried because it clearly was a ball and he called a strike and I retired I caught myself on a date spitting and I don't think any girl finds it attractive when a guy spits. that was on a date spitting not spitting on a date so you're okay still you're okay still. <laughs> I spit and then I'm like oh well that was kind of disgusting I probably shouldn't have done that so I can understand because <laughs> you know Rosario I would hope is not spitting in his mask and maybe he's spitting you know in the clubhouse and guys are doing it when the camera's not on them but I could attest to that. And, you know, while there won't be fans in the crowd, we called it, there will be cardboard cutouts. And I'm glad they're donating the money. It's not going to go to the Wilpons pocket, which we'll get to in a second. But season ticket holders, up to six tickets, will be able to have cardboard cutouts in the stands. Let's hope we don't get like Roger Goodell had the Mandingo picture behind him in the NFL virtual draft. Let's hope we don't get that famous viral picture in one of the seats. But obviously the Mets we'll are going to. anyway, Photoshop always finds a way. The well, there'll be a 
filter. I'm sure someone's going to watch. There will be a filter. But I guess that's a cool element for season ticket holders who now will get their refunds. But if they, you know, get that 2020 on credit, they have the opportunity and it goes to a good cause, the COVID relief. So that's going to be interesting. You know, a lot of balls are going to be hitting, you know, cardboard faces. And some of these cardboard things by a Yoenis Cespedes liner might be broken in half by uh, the end of the first series. So. Uh, it's going to be intriguing to see these cardboard cutouts. I'm excited for that kind of fun angle. And hopefully, like you said, they give the ball to the fan and send it with an autograph too. Yeah, I, th- I think there's going to be a, a lot of different ways um, to continue to keep fans happy and interested in the game. And, and that's an element that I think would be a, a huge success. It's a win-win, especially when you're ra- helping to raise money and using the game of baseball to do so. Players and the uh, fans are always gung-ho about doing that. And they feel like they're a part of the team even more so because this money he's going in their name to the charities uh, i think uh one of the things that you mentioned with the rosario with the spinning there are habits that ball players get into throughout their playing career from a little kid all the way up and some of the guys would spit into their glove and just rub it into their glove but in between pitches and pitchers just you know going to their mouth it's going to be different because remember the other pitchers might be using the same ball at some point they might get thrown out in between innings and have to get thrown out in between every inning just to keep a fresh ball out there that's something i i thought about after my playing days how many times i've put my fingers in my mouth and then touch that baseball that's been on the ground that's been all over the place in, in a ballpark you know been been fouled off and thrown back and you don't really think about all those things until here we are with COVID and they're telling you not to touch your face not to you know to constantly wash your hands and baseball you're you're used to getting dirty that's one of the best elements of playing baseball as a kid is being as dirty as possible that means that you were active even if you tricked your mom and dad thinking that you you know you had a good game why your, your uniform's all dirty well I just got my uniform dirty I didn't even play one at bat so you know all about that Jake I think when we get to the season itself man these these guys are are are, are gung-ho they're they're having their batting practices the crack of the bat and seeing balls getting launched all over city field uh I'm excited for uh uh, 2020 to come and it it can't come soon enough and they're already announcing 2021 games and today the schedule coming out the Mets next season will open the season at Washington on April 1st and I find it a little weird that they're going to face the AL East again two years in a row in interleague they also announced 9-11 gotta love it man the 20 year anniversary next year will be at city field mets yankee subway series that's awesome to see and then you know there'll be six subway series games this year i could pull a mike francesa like he did on the radio and try my best impression and go through the entire schedule like he did if you want me to in his voice uh no uh, they'll no. start the season th- three against the braves and queens no. uh, dog, uh no, dog the, is best is like, the best is he's probably he's doing it like he, he already committed it to memory you know, like, oh, there's three against the Brave, three against... Uh, Mons, get guys? me the schedule. Mons, Mons, <laughs> turn my mic on. <laughs> but basically the highlights figgy three against the Braves start the year they'll end the season at Washington with four uh you got six against the Yankees mixed in there you have four straight I found interesting after that Brave series against the Sox two in Boston then two at City Field the biggest road trip is seven games and I think that's for most teams won't be longer than seven games on the road which makes total sense you really it's just not fair to do more than that especially with all the travel but it's a fairly doable schedule it's not bad I don't there's not too much to dive into it but you know 40 against the division you gotta beat up on the Marlins in those 10 yeah but who else but honestly who else in the division you're, you're like yeah 40 against the Marlins the Marlins always seem to give the Mets fits especially when it was down in Miami that team found a way to kind of shoot themselves in the foot for years yeah you want to beat up on them but the, the NL East 
is just an absolute juggernaut when it comes to the rest of those teams. I mean, you're looking at Philadelphia, Washington, those, you know, are, are going to be not rock'em sock'em robots the whole way. And then you got Atlanta and they play, uh, what? how many is it against Atlanta right out the shoot? I, I think they play at least six games right out the shoot in the first two weeks against Atlanta. So you, you can fall behind quickly with a talented Atlanta team uh, or you can uh, assert your dominance. That's one of the things. Uh, two years ago, I think it was, where the Mets played the NL East 30, uh, 28 out of 32 of their first 32 games. 28 out of the first 32 games. And I said on record, hey, this is either really good for them or really bad. And they started out hot and then all of a sudden they fizzled out really quickly and it makes it a tough uphill climb, especially when it's in your division. And 40 games against your division and you have a tough division out of 60 games, that's going to make it tough for a team like the Mets unless these guys are all going to beat up on each other and then, you know, the sacrificial lamb of the Marlins. But we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, honestly, that's what makes this year, I think, unique is um, only 60 games. A team like the Marlins could come out uh, out of nowhere and, and put the pressure on everybody else and make it a really fun season. Yeah, but they're all they got to beat up on the you got to beat up. But you got four Orioles got to win three out of four. You got yep. the Blue Jays got to take two out of three. At least you got the Yankees Absolutely. for six, which is, you know, it's nice to have two subway series, but you're also facing, you know, maybe the best team in baseball six times. So that's tough. So there's some tough games mixed in. But, you know, this is a team that, in, again, with Luis Rojas, 60 games, you hope in a shorter stretch of a season could get things done. And I think they're good enough. And uh, we're seeing Cespedes now talk more, play some first base. That's not going to happen, but it's nice to see him in the field, him and his defense. We're going to see him in left field. He's not going to be an everyday DH. You just worry that he's going to get hurt running in left field. But remember, he's got a cannon of an arm and you do want his defense, but you also don't want to overuse him. And before we throw it off to Terry, you know, there's other camp news. Brad Brock's still not there. The Mets are very mum on guys there and not there. So maybe he's got the Rona. There is one player who has it, Brody has said. We have no idea. Where the Yankees, they say, LeMay Sessa, they got it. The Mets, they're very mum on everything. So who knows who's got what? So there's something fishy going on there. It's still early. You know, they might just be doing this to separate guys and not have everyone come at once. But you do wonder if they're not saying anything and you're a week in a camp, does Brad Brock have COVID? But I guess we'll never know, Figgy. And, you know, you know how Mets PR can be sometimes. They won't. They'll keep quiet on certain things. And that seems like what that's what they're doing here. Let's hope he's fine and everything's healthy. But it does make you think. I know Jed Lowry said what he said about I don't want to create a distraction and it ends up creating a distraction. But, you know, they're, they are keeping quiet on things. Yeah, that's something that I think you kind of take that chapter out of the Yankee handbook of, of how to keep most things in-house unless you absolutely have to put it out there. What happens with, with Mets information and Mets news, it somehow gets out there. Whether Whoever leaks it, whoever puts it out there, whoever gets an inside tip and all of a sudden it's out there and, it, and it's it's uncontrollable, right? It starts to steamroll from there because then it becomes a he said, she said kind of situation. We don't know anything. We, we're not trying to speculate anything. Um, you know, I, I, again, I hope in this stage um, you're looking at being tested for the first time and guys are getting tested. There's all kinds of physicals going on as well. You never know what could be going on when it comes to the physicals. A guy could be getting an MRI. I would rather know afterwards than the whole, you know, speculation about what it's going on. But these guys are, again, in spring training 2.0. Remember, uh, wasn't it Brandon Nimmo had a heart condition and maybe had a heart condition. He had a heart murmur, had to get reexamined and then had to sit out for a little while. That's the same kind of thing. So you, you're going to have those things happen. It's only natural in, in the course of a, a 
restarting spring training again. And um, they do want to keep the workouts kind of separated and, and staggered and tiered so that, you know, you don't have too many players and uh, on top of each other or close enough to each other. And it's the right way to do things right now because paramount to anything else is the player's health. What happens at flushing stays in flushing. You know how it goes. Yeah, we'll I'll, see. I'll, I could attest to that for those uh, those chop shops and, you know, hubcap shops. I actually went yeah. went back there. My I was driving my friend's car. Listen to this. And I got a flat tire and mm. I had to get a new tire. So I went to get one and I drove to those like chop shops. And my God, it was like the 69 World Series. There were black cats everywhere. One <laughs> one right, right by me. It was a scary scene at those places. And a big reason why the Mets need to turn those into restaurants and bars and, you know, something that's been years, but they, I guess, have not been able, we could do this in other show, but they have not <laughs> been able to buy out these shops and turn them into a place for fans to go. You got McFadden's, McKellar's, and then black cats. But it was scary back there, man. I'll say I may never get a tire back there again. It was definitely cheaper than anywhere else, but. I, I'm scared of cats anyways, but when a black cat, I, I may have some bad luck for the rest of my life after that experience. Uh, moving on. <laughs> I don't know how that came about, but you never know what comes out about here on Amazing But True with the New York Post. Terry Collins is going to join us. And before we transition to that, Figgy, one last thing is Steve Cohen. The bids are coming in this week today, and he seems to be the man. It doesn't seem like A-Rod and company or anyone else is going to match the bid of Steve Cohn, who's worth over $13 billion. And, you know, the whole thing was 2.6, but the Wilpons wanted control for the next five years or they didn't want to hand it off to him immediately. And he said no. But it sure seems like he is the power force in this bidding process and he could get this team back again in somewhere in that 2 to $2.6 billion range. Yeah, and I think that's what it comes down to, right? They're trying to get max dollars, um, you know, with, with everything that just happened with COVID and, and the economy me they're gonna try and make the sale and make the transition the good news for fans is i see it as an opportunity for them to go all out there should be nothing left on the table because if they're truly interested in selling the team then this is their last shot at leaving with a title and in a short season and if you have the pitching staff that you have and the bullpen that you have and, and then this is the time to, to actually go for it so it'll be interesting to see if uh brody has uh, a lot of ideas outside the box we We've known that about him already. So to see that combined with a possible open checkbook as far as, hey, let's you know expand payroll flexibility and uh, go for it. I don't care if there's an asterisk next to it. World Series ring is a World Series ring. Inject Steve Cohen into my veins. Give me a Mets fan owner, a guy who's not afraid to spend money, like you said, who will put it all out there. We haven't had that in years. It's always been about penny pinching with this franchise. I think Steve Cohen is the guy and hopefully they could get that worked out and you know, maybe by Monday show, we'll have some big news about that. But we got a big interview. Real, I really enjoyed this one, Figgy. A lot of different topics we covered with Terry Collins. And uh, he'll join us next right here on Amazing But True from the New York Post. And we're bringing you two episodes a week. And Thursdays are highlighted by guests that you love. And this week... We are joined by former Mets manager. His ass right now is not in the jackpot. It is actually in Florida. Uh, it is former Mets manager and took them to the World Series in 2015. Terry Collins joins Amazing But True with Figgy and I. Terry, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing great, Jake. I'm doing great. How is life in Florida? We, we said before, Duffy's is open. You got to sanitize before you roll those strikes and spares. 
But how yeah, is how is yeah. life for you down there? Well, it's been okay. You know, we we worked very very hard to you know try to you know quarantine ourselves for a while. Uh, when things started to open up, we we were very careful. I like I love to play golf, so you know when I'm not playing golf, I ride my own cart. So I'm trying to do all the the proper things. And uh, you know the spike down here right now is really causing a, a lot of a lot of places to take a second look at whether they're being safe or not. So you know at at my age, you got to be careful. And you with the Mets now, I know you did some special advisor stuff in spring uh what are you doing with the organization what were you doing uh in spring training 1.0 we could say back in march yeah well you know, when uh, when Brody came on, they asked me to, to stay on and, and just kind of be, you know, sounding board for ideas of, you know, different, perhaps it's about a player, perhaps it's about a situation or, you know, I I, taught, I worked with Jared Banner my, his first year because I used to be the, a farm director. So I, I guess use the experience that I've been through in my career to try to help out some of the new guys. But they, you know, they've done, they've got a great handle on things. Allard Baird, you know, one of the great baseball men in baseball that's uh, had a wonderful career, had a lot of different jobs. And I'll tell you what, they attention to detail in, in New York right now is second to none. That's great to hear, Terry. I, I know there was a, a lot of fan outcry when you were let go and, and from players as well. I think you were appreciated for all that you had done uh, for the organization, especially before you became the manager. Um, people don't know behind the scenes, you know, you were field coordinator starting out back when I was there in 2008-9 and uh, having opportunity for you to see it grow to get to a World Series was a great adventure and, and for me, my first year at SNY, I got to sit there and, and watch how that unfolded. During that time, there was the middle of your lineup was John Mayberry, Eric Campbell in June of 2015. Then all of a sudden they started making moves and you get Uribe, Kelly Johnson, Cespedes, Tyler Clippert, and the team turns around. What were you thinking when that started to happen? First of all, I, I, I applaud everything that Sandy and, you know, Jeff and Fred did. You know, they didn't they didn't quit. They didn't fold up the tent and say, hey, look, this is, you know, it's gonna, we're, we're just not going anywhere. But we had that great pitching and we knew that that was, gonna, that was a great base to build on. And when it was, came near the trading deadline, we were kind of still in the hunt. And then, you know, the big trade for, for Cespedes came about, which really put us over the top. And I will tell you, now, is it one of the things that you know in that clubhouse, when you started bringing those big league names in there, that attitude changed. Kelly Johnson walks in. You know, you, you got Juan Arribe walks in. Uh, you know, Cespedes walks in. You go get Addison Reed. You go get Tyler Clipper. I mean, we brought in veteran guys that made our team legitimate. And, you know, when, when uh, David, he came back from injury, when Michael Kadar, you know, Michael Kadar, you look down our bench and, you know, we didn't have young players. We could rely on veteran major league talent to, if you needed a guy have a day off, you needed a pinch hitter. And it made it very difficult for that other manager to make decisions because we had a weapon for him. Yeah, absolutely. You're looking at a fourth of your team changed almost overnight, right? And of course, in the course of that week, That's right. Had, That's right. a fourth of your team has changed. And now all of a sudden, you're looking around at guys who've been there before, who've done it at a high level, who've done it in the playoff type caliber atmosphere, and you know they're not going to fold. So that had to be exciting as a manager. Like, okay, now I can do some things. Now I can try some things. And also for the younger guys, they had people to look up to and not have all the pressure on them. So that was really a, one of the things that I said, turned that season around and made the Mets a contender very quickly. Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. And, I, and again, you know, you look back at that pitching we had, and then we went out and we got some extra bullpen help for Familia. And, and I'm telling you, the entire attitude, I mean, you could feel if we took it, when we went on the field at 7.05, we thought we were going to win. I mean, we said, hey, we're winning this game. You know, it didn't matter who was on the mound. You know, you had a strong lineup. You had a strong bench. 
and guys they just bought into it and and as we we got closer and closer to the finish line we just kept playing better and better I could attest that man that summer and the three-game sweep of the Nationals I remember when you guys got to the playoffs I either took out a personal loan or a new credit card (laughs) in order to go to every one of those home playoff games except the World Series game you won and Terry that still bothers me that I missed that but seven eight hundred dollars a ticket was just too much for my loan to buy so I settled for every other game but that was fun and obviously one of those moments moments I'm sure you look back on is obviously the game five I sat there after the game to the point they kicked me out they're like kid you got to get out of here uh was the Harvey moment and obviously you know you've been asked about it and taking him out leaving him in take us through kind of your mindset there I know Harvey you know the dark night I'm coming out there I'm staying in but obviously you got you know one devil on your shoulder saying leave him in the the angel saying oh let's go to the bullpen take us through that decision well there was a lot of factors you know one of the things that, that started way before that you know you know it, if you remember during 2015 there was a time when you know Matt was worried about innings limits we, we were going to put innings limits on guys and then he wasn't sure he could he, he, you know he wanted to go 185 innings so we started to limit him you know his workload and and you know and when you're when you're managing you want you know you want those guys to be out there you want those guys to take the ball and take you know take control of the game and all of a sudden it was that it was a new after we played the Yankees and Matt started that game against the Yankees he and I took him out after five innings he came in and, and he said look this isn't what I want I I want to pitch and I and so here you you know you try to breed this guy hey take the baseball take the baseball so when it came to game five here was a guy who was in complete control it would have been one thing had he had a bad eighth inning or you know he's been struggling for a, a couple of innings he had an eight pitch eighth inning I mean he was just so dominant and you know we had Juris in the bullpen who was ready at, with 50 saves and even though you know he had had a, a you know he gave up the, the home run in game one he was still our guy and when Matt walked up to me and he said I'm okay I want this game I, and I said you got it go get him you know go finish it off and and I and that's the attitude I love that's one of the things that you try to get your players to take that you know take have that kind of an attitude that hey look this is my this this game's in my in my hands and you know it just didn't work out for us but I, I certainly look back now and, and I really felt that was the right decision to make for me I, I'm sitting there and I know as a player and for Matt Harvey there's no way it was that nice of an answer to, that he wanted to still stay in and he he was definitely adamant about staying in in that situation just blew away the side in the eighth inning was so pumped up and then it, you you saw there was one thing in there there was one moment where it looked like Dan Worthen went to to kind of check him I guess to, to ask him how he was doing or to even question it and that to me was where you know you could see him trying to express how bad he wanted to stay in and was his last game regardless it it was the last game he wasn't going to pitch again even if the world series went to seven games so i was always curious as to when more than went over to him and went to talk to him because that's when he came he got up and he went running to you to kind of try and convince you that he was fine that to me was where that little bit of doubt maybe set in on him was, am I really fine? And that three, two pitch, instead of going and saying, Hey, a one run home run, a solo shot doesn't hurt me. But if I let this guy on and he goes to the slider and bounces it rather than going to the fastball, that is one of those moments that I think sits with me where I know you don't have a regret about that, but I always had the thought of if he's fine and you just saw him have that dominant eighth inning, he's pitched his butt off the whole game long and you wanted to breed that animal, this bulldog mentality that he's had since he came up, why even send, why even was the pitching coach there to talk to him or even check him or ask him to put any doubt in his mind? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know Dan did that. I, I mean, when I told Dan, hey, Dries is in the game, I'm sure he went down and just said, hey, you know, good job. Dries is in the game. And I, I just heard Matt said, you got to let me yeah, stay in. Yeah, and that's when yeah. he came. I heard that. And then he came down and said, Terry, you got to let me stay in. This is my game. 
I'm fine. And so if it's okay, go get him. But I don't know if, if Dan questioned if, whether how, how he was feeling. But, you know, the energy at that, at, as you know, in that ballpark at that time, there was no way he was fatigued. I can tell you. There was no way. You know, he, you know, that adrenaline was flowing. And like you said, you know, he knew this was the, 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 the shining moment. This is what, you know, this is what pitching in the big leagues is all about and on, on that stage. And so, you know, like I said, I, I, you know, again, we can go back and second guess. But, you know, his slider was so dynamic. I thought the same thing. I said, you know, with three and two, go get this guy. He's, you know, the one thing we don't need to do is walk anybody. You know, go get him and make him swing the bat. But, you know, he walked him and certainly, and, you know, then we all, we knew that, you know, he was going to end up in scoring position because, you know, we, those guys could really run. And so it was just a situation where, you know, and again, if we make the play, you got, we get, you know, one, one thing about baseball games, you got to make plays. And when we had a chance to throw that, the time run out the plate, we had, we got to make that play. Yeah, there are two things that give me nightmares melatonin and Lucas Duda's throw home uh, <laughs> in that game. Uh, so, you know, we'll remember it strongly. And then, you know, Matt Harvey kind of fell off. Do you think it was more injuries with Harvey taking a dip? Was his confidence shot? Because now it looks like we don't know if he's going to be back in the big leagues again. You think it was a combination? What happened to Harvey? Well, I believe it's the injuries. I, I, you know, the Tommy John, we know everybody, can, you know, that you can bounce back. And there are guys that haven't, but you knew that they would. I just haven't seen very many players ever bounce back from that thoracic outlet syndrome. I really haven't. I know there's one or two guys out there. The first time I saw it, I had a closer, my closer in Houston, when I managed that, that was John Hudak, who had a great arm. When he got, when he had that, he was not the same guy. And I think when that happened to Matt, you know, it just takes a while. It takes a, a certain amount of time for those, all those nerves to grow back and function. And I think during that time, maybe he made some mechanical changes to, to counteract it all. But, but after he had that surgery, he was not the same guy. And it, therefore, I, I don't think that the, the confidence was there with uh, all of his pitches. And, you know, he said, hey, look, he's worked really hard to, to improve his mechanics and get himself back. But, the, you know, we're talking, you know, in 2013, 2015, this guy was as good as there was in the game. And that's, you know, those are big statements. And to, to be able to come back at that level, it, you know, is awfully hard after some injuries. Do you hate Chase Utley like we do? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know what? I, I used to really like to watch him play until he broke Ruben's leg. I really felt that was an un, you know uncharacteristic move. I know he plays hard. I understand that, but you know that's why I went out and argued a play for me. That was just an illegal slide. It should have been an automatic double play. But you know that that really bothered me because I I know Chase plays the game you know the way everybody wants to play it hard, but I didn't. I, I thought that was uncalled for. And you know that leads to me asking about the clip. That's you know it's a viral sensation now. Fans love you over it. Our ass is in the jackpot, Tom Halley and said the ump and you know the may game in 2016 against utley can you take us through that whole scene and you know you said another word for rooster sucker in there <laughs> uh, i'm sure people could decipher that as they've watched the video but that video is you know mets fans love it can you take us through that whole argument and series of events Back when that happened, back when Chase, you know, in the World Series or in the playoffs, when, you know, when he did that, one of the things our guy said is we're going to, we got to get this guy. So we don't see him again. You know, we don't see him again in the playoffs. And we all know Noah, you know, and one thing, and you guys know, baseball players, we have great memory. You know, we don't forget things. And so the first chance we see Chase Sutley, you know, you know, he's going to get it. Now, my, my whole issue is, you know, the umpire behind home plate at the time was a, you know, a minor league umpire who had just gotten called up. You know, he, and I don't know 
if he didn't understand the situation. But you got to let a big league team, you know, and this is where the game is, you know, changing, I think. But, you know, hey, look, you always had a shot. You knew it was – Chase knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. And you know what? And he's a pro, and he would have taken it. And when, you know, when we threw the ball behind him, but to eject him, I mean, not just to give him a warning, but to eject him in front of, you know, a huge crowd when, it, you know, a big, a big game against the Dodgers, I mean, I thought it was crazy. So I went out, and that was my whole argument. Hey, look, if you want to do something, warn the guy. But you cannot – you cannot take the game out of this kid's hands. You know, there's 42,000 people there came to see Noah Syndergaard pick, not to see you umpire a baseball game. So when Tom Hallion came in, of course, my thing was, hey, look, you got to let us have a shot. And he said, you had your shot. Well, then why are you kicking us out? Why are you kicking somebody out? You know, they want to retaliate. That's when, that's when you know, things can get out of hand. But I certainly at that, at that time thought it was uncalled for to kick Noah out of the game. Yeah, you, you speak the truth when it comes to baseball and the policing of, of, of situations on the field. Uh, normally, you get an opportunity to kind of right some wrongs. And Chase Utley was that kind of player that it wouldn't be the first time that he's gotten hit by a Mets pitcher and just went to first base. Um, I, I think in that situation, he was expecting it. Everybody was expecting it. Noah couldn't, of course, for some reason, hit the broadside of a barn on that on that shot, but he can paint the outside corner, you know, on a bottle cap. Managing styles. Um, you know, you talked about the game and how it's changed, right, these days. And so your managing style from when you were with Anaheim compared to your managing style with the Mets. And what would your managing style be today's game if you had another opportunity? I'll tell you, Nelly, when I, when I first got to the big leagues as a manager, I was, you know, I was, I'm an intense guy. I mean, I had to play that way. I'm, you know, I'm a little guy. I had to play, I had to play harder than everybody else, you know, in order to have success. So when I managed, I thought I was going to do the same thing. I was going to outwork you. I was never going to let anything stand in the way of my team being prepared. And so, you know, I was an intense guy. And then, you know, when I, when I resigned in, in Anaheim, you know, again, but I've had two or three of the players since talked to me and they said, you know, you just wound a little too tight for us. And I understand that. So when I got the job in New York, I said, you know what, I'm going to enjoy the job more than I did before. Even though I love managing, I'm going to enjoy this this chance because I've been out for a long time and had done a lot of different things and, you know, learned some patience along the way. And so when I got the job in New York, I think I just dealt with the clubhouse better, dealt with the players better and enjoyed the atmosphere of the game at that level, as opposed to, you know, every night is, you know, the last, my, you know, it could be the last night I ever manage again I, I i just said hey look i'm gonna have some fun with this and, and that market in that market you have to be able to do that because the fans are intense that you know all that intenseness is all the way around you they don't need the players don't need you to you know to also be intense so I kind of was a little more laid back and enjoyed it a lot more. I had a great time in New York. We we had good teams, but I'll tell you, I, I was impressed by the knowledge of the fans and, and their knowledge of the game. They were in on it. I, you know, I got a lot of letters about strategy things, and you know, I'm thinking, wow, these people, they watch baseball closely. Yeah, that was one of the things about being an analyst of the team. And even if I, w- I, I was right on what my theory was, I'd get letters, I'd get stuff all over Twitter, and they're like, how dare you question Terry Collins? I'm like, I wasn't questioning him. I was just trying to explain the situation. Situation so that you get that's a better right. understanding of all the moves that were possibly to be made. And I think that's what you have to love about New York is the fan, the fans and how, how they are intense and they, they love this team so much. What advice do you have for Luis Rojas in his first season? You know, I've known Luis a long time. And the one thing he, you know, he of course comes from a great family, great back baseball family. And he's got, he's got confidence. He's got a, a good feel for who he is. And don't change it. One of the things, one of, you know, he's got a lot of players now. The Mets have done a great job of bringing up some, some of their minor league players. 
players at the big league, you know, with Rosario and Conforto. These guys have all played Alonzo. They've all played for Luis. So they know him. And the minute he changes to be something different, they're going to be, you know, they're, they're going to see right through it. And it's going to be a tough situation for him. So, you know, I, I told him in spring training, hey, look, just be yourself. You know, and he came to me one day and he said, how would, what would you do here? And I said, it doesn't matter what I do here. The only thing that matters is what would you do here? Because you, you can't, you can't be somebody else. You know, you make a decision that you think's right. You're prepared. You have a feel for it. I used to do, I used to call Jim Leland a lot because, you know, I kind of grew up under him. And those were always the pieces of advice he'd say to me. Hey, look, you, you know, you're on top of the situation. You you do what you think is the right call. So as, as long as Luis doesn't change, you know, as long as he, he's got a good team, he's got a great front office backing him up, just be yourself. You know, be yourself and let the players play. I, that was the other thing I tried to do. There are different attitudes and different players and different personalities, and not everybody's going to get along. Ultimately, you've got to let them play. So that's where that's the talent. And, and what my job was to try to make sure each and every night they were ready to play. You get you get a guy like David Wright. I can't tell you how many conversations I had with David Wright to try to get him a day off. He didn't. He never wanted to come out of a game, you know. <laughs> so I know he needs a day off. And but you know, you give him different situations, different options, and, and really let him make the decision. Hey, look, you know, okay, I'll take Thursday off. You know, let those guys be a part of the decision making because right now in today's game, you know, one of the things the fans don't understand: the players, they're not stupid. You know, they get it. They know they know the game. They know what's, what's happening. They know what's best for them. The more you can include them, the better off you're going to have it be as a manager. What would you say is more difficult, managing the, the situation, in-game situations, or managing the clubhouse in 25 different egos? Well, I think the managing the clubhouse, because especially the way the game is now, where you've got, you know, guys, there's guys. I mean, you've got the sixth-inning guy now. You've got, you know, you've got the seventh-inning guy. You no longer have to really kind of police your way through your, you know, your bullpen. A lot of those guys, hey, look, this, you get all that information up front. It's making sure they're ready. One of the things that people understand, you have to understand: these guys are human beings. You know, they've got pro- they got things at home. They're you know their kids are sick, or their you know their ma- wife's mad at them, or their girlfriend's mad at them, or there's something. And when they come to the ballpark, you know, you just can't turn it on and off. And so I think that the managing those personalities is certainly the, the utmost of the utmost importance in today's game. Yeah, and you guys talked about passion of fans and stuff. I can attest to being one of them. I can attest to you know critiquing you over the years uh, over the Twitter sphere as much of Mets Twitter does about any. Anyone. So, uh, but I appreciate what you did off the field. And, you know, you backed players a lot and there were players who sucked and players who made mistakes. And I think in post-game pressers, you kind of backed them up. Can you talk about that and that dynamic of facing the New York media? And sometimes you had to say things that you might have not believed, but you didn't, you wanted to have the back of your player, even if they might've did something wrong. Well, you have to. I mean, there's there's no I, – I don't know of any manager. If something happens on the field that, you know, isn't right, you address it, okay? And it only needs to be addressed with the player. It doesn't need to be addressed anyplace else. And so when, when I came to New York, of course, I was lucky. I had uh, the greatest media relations man in, in the business in my corner with Jay Horowitz. So, you know, Jay used to direct me after every game. He, he took that five minutes before I went in to see those writers, and he said, hey, here's what you're going to face tonight. So he allowed me to have a heads up of what to expect and, and kind of prepare my answer and yes but you know you got to back up your players you know the game's not easy and you know that was what I used to tell the guys you know the writers they all want their own five minutes here and there and I used to tell hey guys this game isn't easy if it was easy we'd be watching you guys play and on the other side of the field you know you'd have it you have a bad night where the other team you know beat you up a little bit well you know what they're big leaguers I don't care what their record says they're they're major major league players and they're allowed to you know have good nights so uh, I I think one of the things I try to do is never lie to the media never make up a story You, you know hey look just tell the truth because I, I never have to take back something if you tell if I told the truth.
and, and when I and one of the things I did in New York, and everybody said couldn't do it. I read the I read the papers because I want to make sure they're telling the truth. If they wrote something that was was not true, I went up to them individually and said, "Look, that's not true. You want to stir up problems? If you if you say, look, I, I don't like what you did. Okay, that's your opinion. You're allowed to have that. But if you're you make up something that's not true, like uh, there's a story about somebody that something happened and that did not happen. There was a story one time about John Neese and I in the dugout. That did not happen. So so those are the kind of things that I think cause managers issues and between players and managers when to those players when they walked in my office or I went to see them. Hey, look, it, it was all out, out right out in front. I you didn't want to hide anything. That, you know they need to know what they're facing. So and I thought the same thing with the writers. And I told those guys at the end, listen, I appreciate all the all whether it was good or bad. It was their opinion. And I, I I respected that, and and I think that allowed them to respect me in in that in that job because that's not an easy job. On that front, Terry Mickey Calloway comes in. Here comes this you know handsome guy. He's got the beard. He's you know the pitching coach, good with pitchers. He you know had some trouble a bit with the media, and he had the whole situation where he nearly punched Tim Healy in the face. Can you explain? Did you ever have a moment where you were like, God damn it, I hate you, Anthony DeComo, <laughs> or or a question comes up from a guy and you could understand where Mickey's coming from, or did you think Mickey was just kind of a new manager and he handled that situation poorly? First, I got to clarify everything. I wasn't there, so I don't know what all happened. And so I'm talking out. I'm just going to tell you from my respect, from my aspect of it, uh, you have to respect people's jobs. You know what? They have bosses. And, you know, you could be, it could have been his editor that said, hey, look, I want you to go after Mickey Calloway or I want you to go ask him this tough question. And you know what? You get asked a lot of tough questions, but you've got to respect their job. I got a piece of advice, guys, a long time ago from one of the great managers who told me, he said, treat every single writer every media person as if they are the sports editor of the New York Times, you know, the biggest newspaper in the world. And, and no matter how stupid the question is, just answer it professionally. And I try to do that. And, and I don't know what happened. Maybe, again, maybe maybe it, it came down, but you know, you can't, you can't go after reporters. You can't do it. You're not going to win. You're not going to win the battle. And so I felt bad for Mickey because again, he got, he ended up, you know, doing pretty well. You know, we brought him back, but it's more about me. It's more about protecting the player than it is protecting your own, your own, personality or things that you're doing, you know, your own moves or those don't, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. Just go out. But again, I just thought when I, when I saw what happened, I said, boy, you know, you're not going to win that battle, Mickey. You're getting, you know, all you've done now is created an issue where not just Tim Healy, but everybody else is going to be looking for every little mistake you make. I think the number one thing, the number one thing when it comes to dealing with New York media and correct me if I'm wrong, Terry, it comes down to one word, accountability. Right. Correct. That is exactly correct. That's exactly right. And that's what I tried to do. You know, when I would go in that room afterwards and they'd ask me a question, I'd say, yeah, you know, hey, listen, I wish I could take it, wish I could have done something else. But as we know, one of the things in any decision, there's another, there's always another answer. And so, you know, you take all your information you have, you try to make the correct answer. When it backfires, it backfires. You know, what are you going to say? Hey, look, this is what we decided to do. It didn't work. You know, and of course, those are the times you really get blasted. And I used to tease once in a while. One day I, I pinched it to Wilmer Flores and hit a three-run homer to win game so the next day i asked one of the guys i said hey i didn't see anything in that but that decision last night in the, in the newspaper today you know <laughs> if you'd have struck out with the bases loaded what the heck did pinch hitting him for you know but that's the game and that's the nature of the game is to as you say just be accountable you know it's not easy and, and you know you, you make the best decisions you think you can make and and again turn it over to the players and let them go play a couple more minutes here with terry collins former mets manager on amazing but true jake brown at jake brown radio nelson figueroa at figgy and on twitter 
Twitter. 2017 comes, your reign ends. You guys struggle that year. A lot of injuries, 70 win season. Did you want to manage again after that season or were you done? Did that team put you through an, enough Tylenol to last a lifetime? Uh, I was done. I was done. You know, I had a lot of conversations with Sandy throughout the summer. And when it came down towards the end, I told him, that, I said, look, you know, however you guys want to handle this, but I, my time had come. I was, I will tell you one of the things that, again, one of the old managers told me along the way, when it's no more fun, get out. And it was starting to be work. It was, you know, the fun was starting to leave. And I just said, I can't, I can't. And it's too hard. It's such a demanding job. And, you know, you can't do anything about the injuries. That's just the way it was. But, you know, the travel started to get hard. But, you know, there was a, the dynamics of the game were changing uh, with all of the sabermetric stuff coming into play now. And so I just said, you know, it's my time. I, you know, I've had a great run. It was a tremendous blast. I, a great ride in New York. It was a great ride for 50 years. And this is my 51st year. So uh, during all that time, I can look back and, you know, say, God, what would you do different? Nothing. I had, I did, I did the one thing I wanted to do in my life and that's play, play the game of baseball. And uh, so every night I got to do it. And certainly uh, I got to do it a long time in the major leagues with, against the best in the world. And there's nothing more fun than that. So 2021 team offers you 3 million to manage them. You're done. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're bowling at Duffy's. Well, I'm not that stupid, you know. <laughs> I got a question. Who who was your favorite player to manage? Got to be David Wright, right? Got to be David Wright. It's probably got to be David Wright. Yeah. I mean, talk about a guy that didn't need a manager. I mean, this guy just showed up and played, and you know, played hard. He worked hard. He prepared himself. He acted as a pro. I mean, he was always there to answer a question. He was always there, and that's why you know when I when I went to Fred and Jeff and Sandy and asked him to be you know make him the captain uh i talked to david previous about that and he said he didn't want it he didn't want to do that have that responsibility and i said look this is not about giving speeches to the players this is about having somebody in that clubhouse who plays the game who goes about the game who respects the game that the other players can look at up and to this guy's even at the end when he was injured those last couple of years when he would walk back in the clubhouse all the guys looked up when he walked in and that just tells you that the respect that he had from his teammates and everybody else, it was hard because every every in the marketing department, any sponsor that wanted to, they wanted to meet David Wright, and he took two minutes to meet him. He didn't back off, and you, you look at all the things he did. And I say he doesn't get hurt, he goes to the Hall of Fame, uh, and so he he probably goes down as my most favorite player that I managed. Yeah, I was going to say he's a Hall of Famer. I brought a box of Kleenex to that return when him and Reyes were on the left side of the field uh, in that uh, second-to-last game last year. That was uh, emotional for sure. Do you have a least favorite? Can you narrow it down to one? Not really. You know, there, you, you know, again, you can't. There are there are, you, you had issues with different guys at different times, and I will I will just tell you this: one of the things, no matter whatever problems I had with a player, I never had a dog out. I never benched somebody because I didn't like him. If he was the best player, he was in the lineup. And you know what? I go back and I remember Jim Jim Leland telling me one time, you know, there's a lot of guys that didn't like Barry Bonds until it was 7:05, and then everybody liked him. So, the, and that's the way I looked at it. You know, they were say, hey, look, you, you're, you know, they want you on the field. If they don't want to go to dinner with you. That's up to them. That's up to them. But those great players, whether you liked them or not, they're still great players, and uh, you wanted them on your team. Last one for you, Terry, and we really appreciate the time. This has been awesome. The current team, first off, managing in a 60-game season. We talked about it on a Monday. Luis Rojas has done it in the Dominican League, so he kind of has an idea, but if you had to manage,
manage this season? I mean, how difficult will it be? And part two is, what do you think of the Mets this year? Do you think in a shortened season, you know, a lot of depth in the bullpen, good pitching, you know, lineup, Cespedes as a DH. Uh, what do you think of the Mets' chances to win it all? Well, I I always think right out of the gate, pitching dominates. And so you, you've got one of the best pitching staffs in baseball. And, you know, all they've done is gone out and got themselves some more help. You know, go out and got a couple more relievers are going to help them. 60 games, that means every game's important. You know, if you get off to a slow start, it is going to be really hard to catch up with 60 games. Really hard. And especially in the divisions you're playing. You know, the American League East, the National League East are two very, very strong divisions. So you're going to play, you're going to have tough competition night after night after night. So if you don't get out of the gate, man, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough finish. But I really like the way they ran spring training. I know the guy, I know they've got some talented guys and it's all about keeping them on the field. Having a healthy UNF Cespedes back in that lineup is going to make a huge difference. And I know, you know, I know he's coming off the leg issues, but I saw him run in spring training and I'm telling you, this guy can play on both sides of the baseball with anybody. So his presence in that lineup where you can give him a night off from the outfield, let him, you know, let him DH. But this guy's as good a defender as there is in the game. This guy, what, what, two gold gloves? So, you know, just because maybe he's going to need some nights off to, you know, keep his legs fresh, uh, this guy, this guy could really change the dynamics of that, that batting order. Terry, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to thank you for all the years that as an analyst, you have always given me the liberty to have my opinion and we've never had the bump heads and I always learned a lot from you. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. All your years of, of being able to lean on you and even in bad times, you were always somebody, again, very accountable with, with the media. And uh, this is a fantastic interview. I'm glad we had you on. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. And, and please stay safe and let's get baseball going again. Thanks, Terry. Go bowl, of 300. Okay, Go bowl of 300 now at Duffy's. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Talk to you guys. And that is a wrap for Episode 8 of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you're using Apple, rate us five stars and write a nice positive review. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We'll be back on Monday talking Mets baseball as we're less than two weeks from opening day. Talk to you then. Stay safe, folks.